Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. If you're new, we love the Bible. We love to read the Bible and talk about what it says because it is wildly applicable for our lives. So here we are. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, and I love the way it puts it, he wasn't just dying, he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, that would be Manasseh and Ephraim, and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, he made mention of the departing of the children of Israel, and he gave commandment concerning his bones. I think that there's a few lessons here. I'm just going to give you three. I'm going to give you a lesson for fathers, a lesson for our faith, and then a lesson that was for the future. So let me start with the fathers. The first two verses center on the idea of fathers gathering their children and then even their grandchildren together, basically at their deathbed, and blessing them. Now, it's important that we back up a step and we understand blessing in the Bible and what a blessing was. Because we think of blessing in terms of, well, they encouraged me, they said some fluffy words to me, and you know, you blessed my heart. That's how we would say blessing. But the biblical idea of blessing is far more than that. I love the way that Tim Keller uh, summarized this. He said that to have the blessing, it was where the uniquely valuable person in the family, in the tribe, in the clan, would look at you and say, you're uniquely valuable to me. It was where you had the patriarch of the family, the leader, the one who was responsible, not just for his wife or for his children, but oftentimes for a whole tribe of people and all of the livestock and all of the land, the one that really was the the singular person in charge, that they would pick one and say that this one individual is of unique value and importance to me. Now, I know that that is not something that we generally would do in our society, and I'm not advocating that we do. And if you've ever had anything like this happen to you, you know how powerful it is. If you've had anything like this happen to you, whether it was negative or positive, you would not forget a blessing like this, where someone that knew you, someone that was close to you, looked at you and they spoke over you almost a prophecy as it were and said I believe that God has a plan for you and I believe that God's going to use you and I believe that he has he has big things in store for you and I think that you would be good at this or perhaps they said the opposite and they said you're never going to amount to anything and your life's a mess and I'm scared to think what's going to become of you if you've had either of those happen to you whether they were positive or negative whether someone said words of affirmation or blessing or whether someone said words of condemnation and cursing. You can sit here right now and those words are running through your head. It may have been 10 years ago. It may have been 50 years ago. But they still bounce around upstairs because it was a powerful moment in your life. And I'm not saying that they were right or wrong. But you remember those things. And what it's saying in the first two verses is that there are these men And they get their boys or they get their grandsons and they sit on their deathbed 
and they speak over them and they bless them. And it demonstrates a very practical lesson. Now, there's some spiritual lessons we're going to hit in a minute. But on a very practical note, it demonstrates the power that spoken words, especially in a moment like this, have from a parent or a grandparent to their children or their grandchildren. You may not even realize the power that God has entrusted to you when he made you a parent. But when he made you a parent, he gave you the power to speak words of condemnation or blessing to your children that will forever shape them. Not completely make them the person that they are because there's a lot of personal responsibility that goes into that. But you have a unique power as the mother or the father or the grandfather or the grandmother to be able to speak words and blessings that shape your children or your grandchildren. Dads especially understand that your children want a blessing from you. Some of you know what it's like to not have a blessing from dad or to have daddy issues. But dads understand that this is a gift, a power in many ways that God entrusts to you, that you are to steward well. And the point is that this is a gift, this is a power of sorts that fathers have been given to steward well. And some of you know what it's like to have that not stewarded well from your father, and I am sorry for that, I hate that. Some of you right now, though, have the ability to steward it well yourselves, and you shouldn't take the broken script that was handed to you from your dad or from your granddad, but you should alter that script and you should use this. You should be a dad. A dad that is this sort of dad that will bless their children. Now, in my pastoral experience, there's five types of dads. And I'm going to hit these real, real quick, okay? These are the five types of dads I see. There's the dropout dad. The dad that says, this is too, too tough. I didn't realize they'd be this crazy. I didn't realize they'd cry so much. And they're out. Or the dad I mentioned earlier that's going to perpetuate the abortion pandemic and is going to encourage and maybe even beguile or manipulate their girlfriend or fiance or wife or whoever to go have an abortion because they don't want to step up. They don't want the responsibility. They want to shirk it with all that they have and they're just, they're a dropout dad. There's also the deadbeat dad. The deadbeat dad is there, is in the home, would say, that's my son, that's my daughter, I'm a dad, but just is a loser, frankly won't step up, won't actually really own the responsibility, will want to shift that responsibility perhaps to uh, their, his parents, the grandparents, or to the wife or to someone else, but will never really own it. And many times the deadbeat dads, in my experience, are the younger dads that are so locked and loaded on having a good time and never shifted out of 16-year-old mindset to 26-year-old I'm-a-dad-now mindset that they just want to play and they want to have fun and they want to play and they want to have fun and they never want to take the responsibility and actually step up and be a committed, involved, true dad. And so don't be a dropout dad. Don't be a deadbeat dad. Those are not good. I mean, most people in society, even if they don't have a biblical understanding or framework, they would say that's not healthy. That's not good. And dads, I know. Moms, I know. That being a parent is responsibility. It is work. I'm not pretending that it's not. But it's good. And it's healthy. There's, a, there's an old adage that's floated around churches that men especially are like trucks that drive straighter when you put a load on them. And I think that's 
largely true. Kind of some homespun wisdom, but it's largely true. The responsibility of you being a dad is not a bad thing. Own it. But then you have beyond that, you have the driven dad. And I see this even in churches often. Where dad says, I am a dad, and I'm, I'm going to provide for my family in really uh, supreme ways, but they're driven in their career. They're driven to advance. They're driven to earn money, and they're driven to have stuff, but they're not really driven to be a dad. They're driven to climb the ladder. And you need to know if that's you, it is very easy. Men, I understand, especially if you're my age, if you're in your 30s, if you're in your 40s, it is very tough to keep a balance because your job is vying for your attention and for your energy and for your best product and your best work. And your wife is vying for your, for your time and for your energy. And your children are vying for your time and for your energy. And then there's things to do at church and commitments you've made there that are vying for your time and your energy. And it becomes very difficult to balance all of that. But more often than not, if someone gets out of whack and out of kilter, it is they get so driven and so focused on the work side of things that they begin to neglect their spouse or their children. And you need to know that more than getting stuff, your kids need you. They need you to be there, to listen, to be involved. More than pursuing the next promotion or the next bonus, you need to pursue their hearts and be a dad. The fourth one is the dedicated dad. I love dedicated dads, and I see dedicated dads that are Christians and not Christians. Dads that are involved, dads that want to prioritize, dads that want to talk and converse, dads that want to have vacations and go camping and, and, and help and train and teach, and they want to be involved and they prioritize it and they work at it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, but there is one better. If you're a Christian, it should be disciple dad. Because if you're a disciple, you're going to understand you're going to be dedicated. You're not going to be a deadbeat or a dropout. You're not going to be so driven that you're out of whack. You're going to understand what the Bible says about being a dad. And you'll be dedicated, but you will add to it. It'll be like dedicated plus. You will add to it. That not only do I teach my kids about hard work and earning money, but then I teach them Christian values on generosity and how to steward that money when it comes their way. Not only do I pursue their hearts and get to know them and try to help them and guide their future and give them wisdom, but I also try to give them righteousness and I try to help them see that God has a plan for their life and that he wants to guide and that he has big things in store for them. That's a disciple dad. A dad that is committed, that wants to, that wants to study the Bible with the kids, that wants to read or pray or, or come to church and the kids don't have to drag dad to church, but the dad oftentimes drags the kids to church. Be a disciple dad. Here's the point. These men, they came to the end of the road and they got their sons and they got their grandsons and they had spiritual moments with them where they spoke God's promises and God's blessings over their children in a significant, impactful way by faith. That was a spiritual disciple dad when Isaac did that. That was a spiritual disciple dad when Jacob did it. Be that dad. There's also a lesson for our faith. So it's not just a lesson on fatherhood, although that is important and although that is certainly in the text, but there's also a lesson in the text on faith. There is an afterlife. There is uh, life with God. He will destroy sin and death. There is a resurrection that awaits us. They're talking about facing death with faith. And this happens all through the text. There was faith, and I want you to see it very quickly. 
Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, it said, right? So Isaac knew the promises of God that were given to Abraham were handed down to him. And Isaac then hands those down to Jacob. Now he handed them to Jacob by accident because Jacob tricked him. And then Esau came along and said, bless me too. And Isaac told him in no uncertain terms, I can't bless you like I blessed him. I gave it to him. And you're left wondering, if you read the text, like, why not just take it back, dude? Like, you want to bless Esau. Jacob tricked you. You are aware that Jacob tricked you. Why not be like, I crossed my fingers, Jacob. Like, psych, like, the blessing's not yours, right? It was a faith moment in Isaac's life because Rebecca, if you remember the story, Rebecca was told by the Lord when those boys were in her womb that the elder would serve the younger and that the youngest one would be the one on top and the youngest one would be the one with the blessing. And Isaac resisted it his whole life. He didn't buy it and he wouldn't do it. And he was fully intending on blessing the older Esau. And then all this unfolds, and I really believe it was a moment where the penny dropped, and Isaac said, I give up. God said it, and I didn't want it. I didn't want what he said. But I give up, and I believe in him. And the blessing is Jacob's. And he blesses Esau as well with a very secondary, smaller blessing. But he blesses them both by faith. Then you have the story of Jacob, which is interesting. Jacob blesses his grandchildren, Joseph's children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he tells Ephraim that he is going to be better and great. And what he says by faith and proclaims over him becomes true. So much so that many years later, when the 12 tribes of Israel would split into two tribes and 10 tribes, the two tribes would often be known as Judah, uh, one of them who had a blessing, and the 10 tribes would, also, would often be known as Ephraim. And what he said by faith came true. And then Joseph. If you read that, you're almost like, if you're not familiar with the biblical accounts, you'll read it and say, what are we talking about? He's, he like said his bones? He gave them commandment concerning his bones? Who cares? What is that about? And here's what Joseph did. Joseph is in Egypt. Joseph is a ruler in Egypt. But Joseph knows that God has given Abraham and his descendants of promised land. And while they have it made in the shade in Egypt in that moment, Joseph comes to the end of his life and he says, look, this is not it. This is not the fulfillment of God's promises. I believe that God's promises are sure and true and I want you, don't bury me here. Take my bones with you when you go out of this place because one day you're going out of this place and when you get to the promised land, bury me there. And if you read Exodus, you'll find they carry his coffin out of Egypt. And if you read Joshua, when they settled in the land, you'll find in Joshua that they buried Joseph's bones there. Why? Because he was a man who had enough faith at the end of his life to say, God said this would happen. And although I'm not seeing it in my life, I believe his word. I believe his promises. They're true. And I'm banking on them right now. Have faith that continues. Have faith that even on your last days, that you run the race to the end with faith in God. Be encouraged by a Jacob. Jacob is a mess. Read the Bible about Jacob. It's not this like, here's a good chapter, here's a bad chapter. Here's a good chapter, here's a bad chapter. It's like, here's a bad chapter, and a bad chapter, and a bad chapter, and a bad chapter. And he is fickle, and he is deceptive, and he is conniving, and manipulative, and, and engrossed in himself. 
I mean, he is, he's a piece of work. And God finally, in his adulthood, gets a hold of Jacob, if you remember at Bethel. And he wrestles him, and what happens is he cripples him. And Jacob hobbled from that day forward where God got a hold of him. And he, he handicapped him. And for the rest of Jacob's days, he walked on a cane or on a staff. He hobbled along. And this says at the end of his days, he sits up on his deathbed, and if you've read the verse, he leaned on his staff and he worshipped, meaning Jacob learned what it was to lean. It took him a long time, a long time, but he finally learned what it was to have faith in God. He finally learned what it was to worship God truly. He finally learned what it was to lean on God. And here's the encouragement. If you have a Joseph story, Joseph is the opposite. Joseph is like, there's all positive, great things to say about Joseph. Some of you are like, I was born in church, and I never sowed my wild oats, and I never, you know, was the prodigal, and never caused my parents too much grief, and I've always believed in God, and you have a Joseph story, have faith, follow God, be true to the end. Some of you have the opposite. You have a Jacob story, and it's mess and it's dirty, and it's nasty, and you're not proud of it, and you don't want people to find out, and there's skeletons in your closet, and then there's another closet behind that with some other skeletons, and nobody knows where the bodies are buried, and you don't want to tell them, and there's all that in your past. You're Jacob, but you can still worship God. You can still live a life of faith. God can still use you. God can still take you. God wants to use Joseph's and Jacob's, both, both. So no matter where you're at, love him, serve him, follow him. But lastly, there's a lesson for the future. And this, on a personal level, is something that maybe excites me the most about this text. I mentioned earlier that the youngest would, or the oldest, excuse me, would get the blessing typically, and they got like 95% of the blessing. Like 95% of the inheritance and the land and all that sort of stuff. It was the law of primogeniture. That the oldest got it. It's the way it was culturally. And there was a reason why it was culturally. In that day and age and in that culture, uh, you really didn't have a middle class. You had those that were the rulers and they were few and far between, but families that would rise to prominence and would be uh, families of reputation. And you even still see this, uh, not necessarily in, in our society as much, but you would go back a couple hundred years to even like a, a Great Britain society or those sorts of things, families that are aristocratic or families that now the bloodline's being passed down in, in ruling and reigning in the monarchy. Those sorts of things still exist. And that's the way it was. You had these families and then you had everybody else at the bottom. And if your family could get to the top, and could be respected, and could be a family of influence and power. You wanted your family to stay at the top, and the way you did that was not by diluting all of the family's assets amongst 12 sons. The way you did that was by vesting them in the one person, typically the oldest, who you felt was the most responsible and stood the best chance of keeping the family on top. And so it would go to one person. But if you read these accounts, all three of these verses, and you were, say, in 1,000 B.C., let's say you teleported back to that culture, and you knew these stories and you read your verses, you'd scratch your head. You would be befuddled. You would say, what is going on? Like, every one of these are so topsy-turvy. 
that this makes no sense that Isaac gives the blessing primarily to the younger, to Jacob, right? Jacob takes the blessing and he gives it not to a son even. He goes down to his grandsons and when the grandsons come in, if you remember the story, Manasseh is older, Ephraim is younger. He sits on his bed. Joseph brings the boys to get a blessing from Jacob and he puts Manasseh under the right hand of Jacob. And he puts Ephraim under the left hand of Jacob, the right hand being the, the primary blessing and the left hand being the secondary blessing. And Jacob sits up on his bed, he leans on his staff, and then he does this. He switches it. And if you read the text, Joseph grabs his dad and says, Dad, like, our dementia? Like, what's going on here, buddy? Put him back. Manasseh's older. And Jacob says, no. The younger gets the blessing. And then Joseph, right? We read Joseph. What does it say? He gathered the children of Israel. Now, you're tempted to think children of Israel, you know, how it's used as the Bible unfolds, all this big nation. It's not that, okay? The children of Israel, or the children of Jacob are 12. Joseph's one of them. When it says he, gathered, or he gets the children of Israel and tells them this, he's getting his brothers, right? The brothers who betrayed him. The brothers who tried to kill him. The brothers who sold him into slavery. And he speaks faith over them. And he encourages them spiritually. And he has this moment with them. And all three of the accounts are so backwards and are so weird compared to the cultural norms. And they're so just distorted in many ways. And you're left wondering, what, why, how, what is going on here? And it's a lesson for the future. Because, and I'm, I'm almost done, this is it. If you're, the blessing was when the person of unique significance and value would look at someone else and say, you are uniquely significant and uniquely valuable to me. And while it gets all mixed up here, it is meant to whisper that this was going to happen in the future. That God was up to something here, and God was establishing a pattern here, and God was establishing a pattern of, of the firstborn kind of losing the blessing, but those that didn't deserve the blessing or normally wouldn't get the blessing are getting the blessing instead, and it's meant to whisper in really dim ways what will be reverberated and echoed and will become louder and louder as you go through the scriptures until eventually you get to Jesus, who is, as Colossians would say, the firstborn of all creation— the son of the father, the father and the son, right? Who have this love exchange that's happened since the foundation of the world, that the father and the son were constantly pouring love into each other's hearts. That if you've ever walked into your child's room at night and seen them sleeping, and your heart just overwhelms with the joy that you want for them and the hope that you want for them and the love that you have for them, that that is a dim dim whisper of what the father and the son had as they poured love into each other. And that this firstborn, this son of God, would demote himself and would take the blessings that were rightfully his and he would not only leave heaven and become a man, but he would become a man who was obedient and a man who was a servant, but not just obedient, obedient unto death and not just death, but death on a cross. 
As Galatians 3 would say, as he hangs on that tree, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and he takes the curse for us. And what you have in the cross is the firstborn, is the son, is the love, the unique one, saying, I am putting that to the side, and I am giving that up, and I am taking a curse. Why? So that you and your curse can be put to the side, and you can receive the blessing. It's actually meant to whisper the gospel to you that one day there would be a topsy-turvy event that God, in his wisdom and knowledge, would in many ways set aside or forsake the firstborn and would forsake the one who would get the blessing you would think and would instead give it to children who didn't deserve it. And it's meant to communicate something that was for the future but now is not for the future but is for today. That in Jesus, he takes our curse and we get his blessing. We get in Jesus adoption, inheritance, love, glory. And in the cross, the singularly most unique, most valuable being in all of the universe, the king of glory, would look at us and say, you're uniquely valuable to me. I will go to my deathbed, I will go to my death cross, and I will prove it to you. I will pour out love to you and show you that I want to give you a blessing. And if that doesn't excite your heart or cause your heart to worship and to say, not because I earned it, not because I'm good, not because there's anything great in me, but because he just graciously wanted to do it, that the uniquely valuable one would tell me that I'm uniquely valuable, I dare say not only should that cause us to burst with praise, but that should, it should help us. What could overcome if you did have a bad father who never blessed you? Maybe that. Maybe the God of the universe saying, I have a blessing for you. Many of you have received that. You've accepted Jesus Christ by faith, and he's your Savior. Some of you haven't, and if you haven't, I hope that you will. But if you have, see the diamond that is the gospel from a different angle today. Get a little, get a little different aspect. It was a blessing. It was God blessing you. And if you can get a blessing from him, what else do we need? What else do we want? It should produce contentment. It should produce joy. It should produce worship in us. That what was in Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, was meant to be shown what is for us in Jesus. Hey, this is Pastor Mark again, and I wanted to take a moment and just say thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that the message both challenged and encouraged you from the Word of God. Maybe you're listening for the first time. I want you to know that we believe the most important decision you'll ever make is the decision to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. To find out more about that, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash gospel. If you live in one of the four counties that are church borders, Allegheny, Westmoreland, Armstrong, Butler, and you don't have a church home, then we would invite you to come and to worship with us and join in the gospel work that God is doing here at Harvest Baptist Church. Maybe you're a regular listener and God's laying it on your heart to support the ministry and the outreach of Harvest. Your gift would help us reach more people more effectively with the gospel message. If you'd like to partner with us for ministry in Western Pennsylvania and around the world, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash give. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.